Welcome to Women and Manufacturing, where accomplished women interview accomplished women, with your host, Jennifer McNelly. Welcome to Women in Manufacturing Radio. I'm Jennifer McNelly, President of 180 Skills and host for today's show. Women represent a vast portion of the U.S. economy and our talent pool, yet they are an untapped resource in manufacturing. We're only 29% of the workforce. This gap represents an opportunity, an opportunity to share the inspirational stories of women leaders in industry today. And I'm honored today to be joined by one of those leaders. For those of you that are listening, please join our conversation today, hashtag women and MFG. Today joining us is Paige Castellan, Market Analyst for the Future of Mobility at Covestro. Paige, thanks for joining us here today. Yes, thank you. Excited for today's conversation. So before we dive into your journey in manufacturing, can you first tell me a little bit about Covestro and your role as the market analyst for the future of mobility? That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty awesome. And so Covestro is a material science company that specializes in polyurethane foam, polycarbonate plastics, and then raw materials for coatings, adhesives, and specialties like film and textile coatings. And so a large portion of our materials go into the automotive industry for things like seating foam or headlamps or exterior clear coats. But right now, the automotive industry is changing rapidly with the disruptors of autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and then ride-sharing. So my team and I are tasked with identifying the value drivers for future vehicle material selections and then how advanced materials can solve the challenges that these trends that I was talking about, like ride-sharing and automation, will bring to the interior and exterior of the vehicles. Um, and so I'm kind of looking right now for the 2025-2030 time frame, and a lot of the different things I do um, really range from leading projects to develop new materials to some really cool design work that we've been um, partnering with students on. That I'm, I'm going to ask a clarifying question. I, I'm, I'm feeling free to be the dumb kid against the smart <laughs> kid on the phone today. You said value drivers. What does that mean? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a great question. So value drivers. So right now, you know, if we're thinking about future vehicles um, moving away from the driving experience to the riding experience, it's really going to be what people want. So I know for me, I'm a millennial, and right now my priorities are kind of getting somewhere in a comfortable fashion, but then also um, inexpensively. So there are some people that might value different things over others. Um, other things could be infotainment or very comfortable modular seating. So different things that we think are going to be big parts about what the riding experience is and what these future users would want. Awesome. So as a Gen Xer, my value is somebody else driving. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> You're focused on efficiency and cost, and I'm focused on not having to be the one to worry about how I get from A to Z. That's, that's yep. great. And to all our listeners out there, thank you for um, allowing me the patience to understand what that means. Um, that's really awesome. So what I hear you saying is come 2025, 2030, the projects and, and products that you're thinking about are the things that are going to show up on the showroom floor, or are they going to be showing up at the big 
auto shows like the Detroit Auto Show. It's you know last month was January. I think that's Auto Show month in in Detroit. So when when does that stuff start to get into the concept process? So we're really beginning. Um, we're beginning some prototyping opportunities now. We're trying to find ways that we can showcase what our materials can do for these future experiences. And um, so the time frame is so difficult because one of the things we're focusing on um, is autonomous vehicle ride sharing. So what you would see maybe with different ride hailing companies like Uber or Lyft. And we're predicting that some companies um, that will be creating that service of ride sharing might want to own a fleet of vehicles. So if they're owning a fleet of vehicles and they're operating this fleet of autonomous vehicles, then, you know, these cars might not even be on a show floor because they're just sold directly Mm. to the service providers. Um, And so one of the things we're thinking about a lot is that with um, the materials that we sell into the automotive industry, they're designed for the vehicles to last maybe 15 years and 100,000 miles. So if you're driving an Uber today in L.A., um, you could drive 100,000 miles in your first year of driving. And then my backseat of my car right now really doesn't see anybody getting in and out of it, but these Uber and Lyft cars um, for the ride-sharing services, they will have 40 to 50 people getting in and out every day. So we're thinking about the different durability requirements our materials would need. Some of the work I did in the World Economic Forum talked about sort of the impact of the uberization of cars and it never once did it get into the what does it mean about materials so that's really cool that's that's pretty neat so i'm going to um switch gears here a little if you don't mind and i'm going to take you back to the early years Tell me what your favorite subject in school was. So as an engineer, I feel like I'm a little different because I don't jump right to math and science. Um, When I was a kid, I really liked art, and I think it was because it really gave me the opportunity to express that creative side and also build things. So what I realized is I would always try to find these creative solutions to turn either like a blank canvas or a ball of clay into something really cool and interesting. And I really learned growing up that problem solving and creativity is really what engineering is about. That's great. Did you have a teacher or a family member that impacted um, your decision to go into or pursue a STEM field? First off, did they call it STEM when you were going through, or have we done that since then? (laughs) Huh. Oh, God. Yeah, I can't even remember the first time I heard the word STEM, but now it seems like STEM and, you know, STEAM, including the arts, um, is something people talk about all the time. And it's a hard question to think about um, a specific person that really impacted some of my career path. But, of course, my family has been a huge influencer on my life. Um, And I think there are a lot of teachers that throughout, like, my middle school and my high school and college career also really influenced my path. Um, But I think the common theme for them all was, Um, They weren't only my engineering teachers or science teachers, but they were people who really made me feel like I can do anything if I put my mind to it. And I think that's really important because when kids are empowered to take risks and then they see either a success or a failure, then they realize whatever task they were trying to complete isn't as difficult as they thought. And really that positive encouragement really affects, I think, performance. You know, if you have people telling you that you can do it, 
the chances of you succeeding are much higher. That's interesting that you should bring out both the the empowerment for risk, but the success and the failure. Can you think of a childhood example or some, you know, early before, because we talk about that a lot in the workplace of everybody wants people to be innovative, wants them to be risk takers, but there isn't always necessarily the threshold for tolerance of failure. Um, Did you have any experiences that stand out when you were younger about where it didn't work out and you thought, okay, I learned a lot from that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, this is not directly answering the question, but something that I remember just growing up and I remember sometimes I would be so nervous to raise my hand and answer a question because I was so scared that I didn't know the answer 100%. I was only 95% sure. And I remember thinking, okay, like, no, I don't want to answer and hearing someone else answer the question and get it right when it was exactly what I was thinking the answer was. So even though that's really not a huge failure, I think that was a lesson that I learned where I was limiting myself from, you know, being engaging in a classroom and participating because I was scared. And so I'm glad that I kind of made that realization early on and said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to try and Again, those small risks, I think, helped me a lot whenever I moved into my engineering career, and I would do some extracurricular projects um, and take on team responsibilities because, you know, there's going to be failures, there's going to be successes, but everybody ends up getting through them in the end. Yeah, I actually think that's an incredibly powerful statement because I think of how many students today sit in the classroom and are afraid to raise their hands. So, you know, let's hope we promote this out to some to some students so that they they understand it's okay to make a mistake. It's how you learn. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. That's wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about your journey into manufacturing. How did you how did you first decide or find manufacturing as a career? So my first exposure to manufacturing was when I was going into my senior year at college. Um, I worked for Covestra down in Baytown, Texas, as a process control technology intern. And having a degree in engineering really gives you this toolbox of knowledge that is needed to solve these huge real-world problems. Um, And I remember, you know, it's kind of intimidating seeing this large chemical plant and thinking, you know, that's something that I'd be interested in doing because, you know, those are huge real-world problems that I would need to be solving. And um, so I just remember kind of different options where I saw some of my electrical engineering friends going and doing software programming at tech companies or um, programming circuit boards at different um, companies. But I just remember, you know, this is kind of different and this is cool and something that a traditional electrical engineer might not go to. So, like, let me take the risk and let me try it out. Um, And so I think that that experience working down in Baytown um, really got me into this idea of a manufacturing career. Did you have anyone in the family, any connections to manufacturing? I know data behind it shows if if you're exposed to it, you're more likely to consider it. Um, Anyone anywhere in your family or friends that were engaged in manufacturing? Just curious. Yeah, no, not really, but I think especially because I'm originally from Pittsburgh where I live now, but, um, you know, Pittsburgh has a history of producing steel, so I think that um, it's really cool to kind of be a part of 
the city that was built on the production of steel and then now seeing all the innovations that's happening in the city. So I think it's, you know, it's definitely close to every Pittsburgher's heart. Yeah, they've done a great job reinventing what modern manufacturing looks like in the city of Pittsburgh. That's wonderful. So what attracted you to Covestro? When I was um, back in my intern days down in Baytown, I um, I really felt, um, again, that support that I had talked about a little bit before where, um, you know, by having the support with the other engineers I was learning from, I really felt more empowered to push myself as an engineer. Um, and I really think that you know, all graduating students, um, when they get their first role and even when they move through through their careers, that's just the biggest thing. They want to know that people believe in them and really think that they're bringing value to the organization. So that was really what attracted me to Covestro, and I'm glad that I did have that experience, um, that such welcoming experience when I was an intern in Baytown. So from intern to full-time, talk to me a little bit about what your journey has been at Covestro. So I um, started, yep, like I had said, as a process control technology intern. And I, um, I remember whenever I started my electrical engineering degree, I really felt out of my comfort zone um, because it was everything was kind of like my high school math and science stories, but on ster or um, classes, but on steroids. And it was it was definitely scary thinking about oh no, how am I going to get through all of these um, all of these problems that I needed to solve? And I think by my senior year, I was getting pretty comfortable. So that's when I kind of decided to diversify my skill set and jump into more of a commercial role. And one of the cool things at Covestro is that, you know, we're a technology company or a manufacturing um, material science company. And so any role that I would still have would still be more in that technical field. So I did one of our commercial trainee rotating programs where you rotate through product management, where you're really learning about planning for chemical plant um, forecasting. And then industrial marketing, which is really doing a lot of analytics about where the business should go and strategy. And then technical sales, where you're working out with, um, out with people that will be using our materials in real-world situations. So that's um, kind of the path I took. And again, it was kind of uh, interesting at the beginning because um, there was a lot of ambiguity. And I think it's funny because as an engineer, and especially being in an, a plant, um, right and wrong is pretty binary. But what I learned, <laughs> especially now um, being in my role where I'm analyzing this autonomous vehicle market landscape, really there's no right or wrong answer, but it's a lot of educational guessing. So that's when I kind of had to learn how to use my problem-solving skills in a different way. And instead of using numbers and equations, I had to take a bunch of information and find a new way to process it and then generate a solution from that. That's, <laughs> I can imagine some engineers might, make, might not make that transition quite as smoothly as you have because um, you're right, it's not black and white. It is shades of gray interpretation and market opportunity. That's um. I'm curious, in this, have you advanced your formal academic education? So, uh, you know, B 
do you see a role for an MBA? Do you see a role for statistical analytics for the entire world of um, the Internet of Things that's emerging? Do you, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I've um, definitely been exploring some different options um, because I would love to get some type of master's. And I think one thing I'm definitely passionate about is data science and learning how to manipulate data to generate some solutions um, quicker. And I think that's something that being in my role now and having my engineering background has really helped me. Um, I'm always the first to jump on to new softwares that we're trying that we're trialing where you might need a little bit more programming knowledge than the average person. So it's, um, it's kind of fun for me to figure out an, a way to do things smarter instead of harder. Um, so it will be, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to be interested in seeing um, what I feel like is right and when the right time is to make those moves. Well, and let your interests and career be your guide. I'm a big fan of, of learning with purpose. It makes, mm-hmm. it makes it a lot more valuable, I think, in the marketplace. <laughs> I completely um, so I'm agree. Gonna go back, yeah, I'm going to go back um, to the whole idea of taking risk and stepping up. And I do understand um, that you've stepped up and taken on a challenge for the company. And one of those challenges was representing Covestro on the ground crew of um, Solar Impulse, you know, the first and only solar-powered plane to fly around the world uh, without a drop of fuel. I now get the future of mobility, Miss Page. So can you <laughs> talk to me a little bit about your role in the mission? Yes. So I was an electrical engineer on the ground crew, and I was, of course, representing Covestro. And Covestro was a part of this project because they supplied the lightweight and efficient materials for the airplane. One of the big things that um, one of the big focal points that we supplied was the insulation for the cockpit. And one of the interesting things with this airplane is that it was not um, pressurized the cockpit, and so it wasn't heated or cooled either. So at the um, altitude of 28,000 feet, which was the highest altitude the airplane would go, it would be about negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So pretty chilly for the pilots, and the insulation that we provided would allow the interior of the cockpit to be just below zero degrees Fahrenheit, Um, and I think that that's kind of interesting because, especially coming from an electrical background, I hadn't thought so much about how just changing a material could make a difference. Um, My mind always goes to, okay, what type of... um, circuit can we build to, um, you know, solve this problem. But without changing the weight, we were able to just change the material. And because this insulation had less pores than the traditional type of insulation, um, it enabled the cockpit to stay warm enough to be livable for the pilots, even though just below zero Fahrenheit isn't the most convenient temperature to be at. <laughs> yeah, but sounds like a lot warmer than it otherwise would have been. That's mm-hmm. That's an interesting, I mean, smart observation. So how did this experience help prepare you for the role you have today in the future, you know, leading in future of mobility? I think one of the big challenges I face with my job in the future of mobility is that I really have to be confident with my decisions. Um, This industry is just moving so fast and a lot faster than the other industries that we supply our materials into. 
And I have to give a lot of presentations. I make a lot of decisions without having the time to consult other people in my organization. And I really had to do a lot of that with Solar Impulse. So on the ground crew, one of the tasks I had was when the airplane was landing, I had to then run and grab this bar that hung down off the wing that we called the handling mast and make sure that as the plane slowed down and stopped, I was supporting the wing to make sure the airplane didn't fall over. And I know that sounds completely bizarre, um, and especially when I was told that that was going to be one of my jobs, I was very confused. But so something in those um, split-second decision-making processes where, you know, the plane's landing, and if I'm unsure about something, there was no one next to me or within, you know, even yelling, uh, yelling reach that I could say, hey, like, what do I do? I had to make the best educated decision I could off of the information I had. So I think that having to be confident with my decision-making at Solar Impulse really helped me now have that confidence to make the decisions I need to in my current role. So about having the information, being able to process the information and execute against the information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, so you you essentially saved the and, and was the point of propping up the wing. Now now my curiosity's back again. I'm a <laughs> dumb kid here. Um, <laughs> was that so so it wouldn't tip over on one wing or another? There yeah. was it about so the so it didn't essentially break the wing off. I don't know if that is that is, is that the right way to ask the engineer the question? <laughs> <laughs> the airplane had only two wheels for um, oh, two wheels, and they were tandem like a bicycle. So okay. when, yeah, when the airplane would land, um, you know, just like a bike, if the bike is moving, then the, like, you're not going to fall over. But as you're slowing down and as you stop, that's when you risk falling over. So the wingspan um, was 236 feet. And so it's kind of like having a basketball court on each side of the this bicycle. And so if a gust of wind blew, then the wings, um, you know, the plane could kind of topple to one side. And with the solar cells on the wings, that would cause um, damage if it crashed to the ground. So I'm just curious if sprint training were part of your training to be part of the solar impulse team. (laughs) A funny story was when I interviewed for the position, I was asked if I know how to ride a bicycle. And that was because if I was not running to grab the wing of the airplane, I was riding an electric bicycle at 40 miles an hour down the runway following the airplane to be there just in case the runners weren't fast enough. So there was definitely um, some interesting training involved. <laughs> That's awesome. So you can travel at the speed of an airplane. That's what I've just learned, man. I'm not, I'm not running against you in any sprints. <laughs> Did did you think that you'd ever find such a diverse career opportunity in manufacturing and with a chemical company? Absolutely not, but I'm so glad that I have found all these diverse opportunities. Um, I think that, you know, it's so fun to um, have the opportunities to do different things. I've been involved with autonomous vehicles and solar-powered airplanes in just the short three years that I've been involved. at Covestro. And I think um, 
especially as I move forward in my career, since we're so far back in the value chain and because we're really the manufacturer of these raw materials, um, our materials go into everything. So I know um, other things, like they'll go into wearable devices, which is going to be even more um, of a hot topic as we move into the future. We sell material that goes into makeup, like mascara, which I think is pretty cool. And um, also a lot of uh, coatings for textiles to develop these different fashion trends and embedded LEDs and all of this stuff. I think, I think that there's a lot of unique opportunities that I didn't think about before getting into this career. And I hope that, um, you know, maybe listening to this, other people could think that these options are available to them. So it makes me think that you make the things that make things super cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, uh, Paige, in the tremendous set of experiences that you've had to date already in your career, what do you do to inspire and engage others? The Solar Impulse story is so cool, and especially being um, the only American that was on the project, um, on the ground crew, and of course, being a female engineer, I volunteer a lot to speak and share the Solar Impulse story. I've also started to speak at autonomous vehicle conferences about the material solutions we offer. And the reason I do that is a little different, though. So I went to an autonomous vehicle conference, and like the more conferences I go to, I realize there's really not a lot of diversity in the speakers. And especially, I see it all the time now, when conferences put up their speaker lineup, you don't really see much diversity. And of course, it could be because there aren't as many women in the field. I know you had given some statistics about manufacturing earlier. Um, but I also think that it could be because some of the women in, these, in this field with these awesome roles with a story to share really don't have the encouragement from their peers or organization to get up there and present. So the one thing, the problem that I see with this is that, you know, when I go to these conferences, sometimes I feel, you know, a little out of place. And I think that when you're somewhere and you don't see anybody really that looks like you or talks like you or just somebody that, you know, makes you feel comfortable, you begin to think, am I in the right place? And so I think that's why a lot of people drop out of these fields like manufacturing or technology because they, everyone's kind of drawn to be with people that, you know, they might have some like common interest with. So no, learning a little bit more about how I felt attending these things, maybe being the odd woman out type thing, um, I chose to push myself out of my comfort zone and offer to present at some of these conferences. And I think that, um, you know, you're never fully ready for this stuff, but I was like, you know what, I have to challenge myself. You know, if I'm not willing to get up there, there are probably others like me. So, um, so I'm hoping that by doing this, you know, maybe others would say, hey, I could do that too, and that would help us get some more diversity in um, conference attendees and speaker lineup. That's a great – and I think it's important to get out of, out of your comfort zone. I also think it's important to have a platform – in which we can tell. That's why I love women in manufacturing radio. We get to interview unbelievably <laughs> intelligent and accomplished women whose stories may otherwise go untold. I'm curious, when you find yourself in that circumstance, how do you 
to, so to to the women that may be listening today, how are you coaching yourself through? If you walk into the room and you're the and you're the only woman on the lineup, and again, you can see that in advance. How are you coaching yourself through that? <laughs> When you find yourself in that circumstance, maybe it could be a guiding light to some of our listeners today. Well, one thing, especially in college, I would focus on is all of the pros that you have maybe being a little bit more unique in these fields. So right now, um, or I remember in college, I was maybe one of maybe 10 girls out of the 160 that graduated with a degree in electrical engineering my year. And I really thought of that as a strength because, you know, maybe I stood out a little bit more. Maybe, um, like, my teachers always knew my name. So things like that, I think, if you look at those as the positives, um, that can give you confidence because you realize, you know what, I have a presence. And I think, um, as weird as that might be, having a presence, I think, really helps when you, you know, walk into a room. Some people might take an interest and say, hey, that, that woman – seems interesting. You know what? I'm going to talk to her. And I've made a couple connections that way, even if I'm sitting on an airplane with people or um, I know at some of these autonomous vehicle conferences I went to, I would, um, after a presentation, I would stand up and ask a question. And I was so, um, so interested to see that afterwards, a bunch of people found me and said, hey, that was a great question. Let's talk about this further. So I think that um, Focusing on the positives of maybe being in those unique situations are um, is really the advice I would give. And, again, surround yourself with a support system because, of course, it does get frustrating to be in those situations sometimes. But when you have people, again, saying that you can do it or, oh, this is great work that you brought back, then it's definitely encouraging to keep push yourself. Do you consider yourself courageous or is it natural? I think, of course, everyone gets nervous with a lot of things. Um, But as I kind of talked before about with um, the raising your hand thing, I know that when I weigh the values or, you know, the value drivers for me, I definitely would hate to limit myself because I was scared to do something. So even though it can be scary, I would probably be more afraid or more frustrated with myself if I wasn't willing to try something. That's a smart guidance. Um, so, Paige, talk to me a little bit about what you see as your greatest professional challenge. I think um, my greatest professional challenge is definitely I'm in an industry that is looking very forward to the future. And every day I read news articles about, you know, um, what the status or what the status is of this industry. And typically every day I see things that um, I think the recent statistic was 60 or 70 percent of Americans still don't know if they um, feel comfortable with this technology. They still think they're afraid of it. And um, I think that for me being in this forward-looking industry and thinking about it every day, it's interesting when I do read these articles or come across people that don't necessarily feel that this is an industry that's going to be successful and bring value to the, you know, bring value to society. So I think especially whenever I'm, you know, out and engaging with people, learning how to position um, what I do is with my role into not that Yes, this is totally happening, but really about how, 
you know, my role is to identify the probability of autonomous vehicles and ride sharing happening and then making strategic decisions based on that. Um, and I think that especially because things are moving so quickly, people are getting more open-minded to technology. And I'm pretty excited to see, you know, in the next year and three years, five years, really how the world will change. You know, it's interesting on that front, and my dad was always ahead of his time in thinking about what was next. And, you know, I'm a sci-fi junkie, so <laughs> I'm always thinking, you know, when's the food replicator, man? The day I don't need to worry about cooking is my happy day. And, you know, you can digitally print a cupcake. <laughs> so, so I think there is so much change, but I absolutely think you're right in that that can be really scary um, because it has huge societal impacts in the way in which business happens, in the way in which people interact. I mean, I just think about the days when you walked into a bank to conduct business with somebody, and now you go to an ATM and never see that person. So so there's a lot to be said, and I can imagine that you find yourselves in some really interesting cocktail conversations around futuristic thinking and what's going on in the marketplace, but then also having to be really sensitive to balancing how how you then – um, help alleviate what can be scary um, to people. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, so the 50,000-foot question here, tell me what your experienced self would say to your teenage self today. <sighs> I, um, I definitely, one thing looking back on different choices I've made, I've been really happy that I have been um, – I've been willing to challenge myself to really embrace all different parts of my personality. You know, I have a background in engineering, and now I work in a manufacturing industry. But I also, you know, I love taking French while growing up, and I wanted to be in a sorority, and I am a scuba diver. So all of these different things, I didn't want to drop any parts of my personality um, because I thought I had to fit into this mold. So I'm definitely happy that I was able to stay true to myself, and I recommend that, you know, everybody find ways to integrate all of those components of their personality to what they're passionate about and then their job. Um, but I think it goes back to that I really wish I wouldn't have questioned myself so much. So I think that there are definitely a couple moments, like I had talked about growing up, where, you know, I was so nervous of failing that, I wasn't willing to take the risk. And I think, again, that's just a good message is taking a risk is like if you don't take the risk, you're never going to reap the reward. So it's failing's not terrible. You're going to learn from it. And um, the success is pretty exciting once you do feel like you did take that risk. That's a very enlightened perspective also of being true to yourself. I hear that a lot of – and I found myself in rooms with – women leaders in the industry that that grew up thinking it was all about fitting in and and the fact that you respected the the trueness to yourself probably i i'm confident is a big piece of what makes you the leader that you are today and i'm going to be so excited to follow your career as you move forward so i do always like to end my show um with a challenge to our audience uh words of wisdom takeaways, 
things that you would ask them to consider. So to our listeners today, um, what challenge or guidance or action would you ask of them, Paige? I want to give everyone the challenge to take a second out of their day and just give a compliment to another female colleague of theirs. I think one thing that um, we don't realize sometimes is somebody might seem very confident on the outside, but they might need that extra support. And it really goes a long way when you say something like, wow, you really deserved that promotion, or wow, you really earned that spot on the team. I think using the terms deserved and earned is something that really goes a long way when you're speaking to other women. Um, and of course, because we want to create a support network among all of us, you know, so taking that time to go out there and show that you're being that support network for others, I think really goes a long way in changing the culture. So I would ask to our listeners today, as you are following on hashtag women and MFG pages challenge, use the terms deserved and earned. And to the extent that you can share what you're doing, let's help Paige pay it forward. Paige, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to join us on Women in Manufacturing Radio. I am confident that by sharing your story, we will inspire other listeners. We're going to give them an assignment, and I can't wait to see what they do. <laughs> to our listeners, please engage in the discussion on Twitter at hashtag women and MFG. Your assignment today deserved and earned how are you going to pay it forward Paige thank you so much yes thank you thank you for listening to women and manufacturing this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com